I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 140, which along with Psalm 142 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, July the 2nd, 2021. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. We are working through, still, the books of 1 Samuel, Acts, and the Gospel according to Luke. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start with this 1 Samuel lesson, and it's 1 Samuel 13, verse 19, all the way through verse four, or chapter 14, verse 15. So we get first the backstory. We remember they're coming against the Philistines. Saul had about 600 men, and the Philistine army was too numerous to count, like the sand on the seashore. They had 30,000 chariots and about 6,000 horsemen in addition to those other troops. So not only are they at a great numerical disadvantage, they're also at um, a weaponry disadvantage. We're told in the very first verse, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. So they wouldn't allow them to have swords or spears, and the best way to do that is, is to prevent them from being able to make them. They didn't, didn't allow blacksmiths in the land at that time. And so what happened is, is if you wanted to have your plowshare, your mattock, your axe, or your sickle sharpened, you had to take it to the Philistines who charged you for that service, of course. But they, they couldn't do any of those things. And, and we're told in here how much it costs to get all those things taken care of, all those sharpening uh, services done. It, it's an odd little piece of information. There's got to be some reason they chose to put it in there, but I can't for the life of me figure out what it would be. So on the day of battle, there was neither spear, sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And so then Jonathan decide, looks at his young man who carried his armor and says, come, let's go to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. And I wonder why he didn't tell his father. We're not told why he chose not to let Saul know what he was going to do. And it's possibly because his father would have tried to talk him out of it as a foolhardy thing for his son to do. He would have been afraid for his son's life. So he takes him, <coughs> takes the, the armor bearer, and they go. And they go. The people didn't know. Nobody knew except for him and his armor bearer. <coughs> And then he goes through the passes and goes up to this place. And once he gets there, he says to the young man, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. So the out, you know, sort of the outskirts where the people, where the, where the soldiers are waiting to be the, the heralds if they see anything. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan was a man of great faith. Jonathan knew better than his father did, in reality, who was responsible for victory. He, he wasn't depending on these 600 men. There was no possible way these 600 could defeat the, the army of the Philistines. And yet, Jonathan knows that, that that's not the issue here. The issue here is not numerical advantages. It's simply, is the Lord on their side? Is he fighting this battle for them? And so he's not willing to ask others to go for him. In fact, you can see in this, it's almost the reverse of the story of the spies coming up into the land, right? So what you've got is, is one guy who's not sending out somebody before him to see what this looks like and, and what their uh, options are. No, Jonathan goes himself. 
doesn't hold back and says, look, here's the deal. I'm not worried about this because if, if he's going to give us the victory, then he's going to do it one way or another. It doesn't have any it doesn't make any distinction whether or not it's me and you or the 600 because either one of those is insufficient forces to win this battle. But that's not the point. And so his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. Jonathan was also a man because of his bravery, because of his faith, and because of who he was, who inspired great loyalty. You know, Jonathan wasn't about this for himself. There was nothing Jonathan ever did in his life, that we're told at least, where he did something for himself, where he set himself above everybody else and set his good above everybody else's. You know, because he's the guy who would ordinarily be expected to take the throne that his father held. But, but he didn't, and he never claimed it for himself. He, he in fact, loved David and, and went and entered into a covenant relationship with David who he knew would be the next king of Israel, in spite of the fact that he had a better claim in in an earthly way. He didn't care. And so he inspired great loyalty because nothing was about him. And so he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We'll cross over to the men, the Philistine garrison, and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. You have to believe here that he's hearing this from the Lord, that he's not just making a plan and then retrofitting God's sign onto that plan. So so what he's saying is if they say, wait, and we'll come to you, he said, we're going to stand right here, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come here, then, then we'll go, and that will be the sign that the Lord is giving them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Remember that from yesterday's lesson. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we'll show you a thing. Jonathan said, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So he climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that, after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within it as, as if it were half a furrow's th- length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Two guys, two guys were sufficient to send the Philistine army into a panic because they took the garrison, and now they're afraid. And why is that? Well, it's because the Lord's fighting for them. It's because God's doing exactly what he said that he was going to do. And so Jonathan here shows everything that you'd want from a great leader. He, he certainly, if you read this in real time, if we, if we hadn't already read about David being king, if we didn't already know that, then we would look at this and say, who would you rather have as king right now? The answer would be Jonathan. He's the man with great faith. He's not the one who failed to wait for the Lord when he told him how long to wait. He's not the one who took matters into his own hands. No, he, he goes and he's going with the Lord and he's going with a plan. And that battle plan that he has has to have come from God. So he's not just making it up as he goes along. He's an extraordinary leader. He would have made a great king. There's no question about it. But Jonathan knew one thing. It's not about me. It is not about me. He knew his place and he knew his role and he accepted that. He accepted it with, with not just, you know, sort of resignation. No, he, he accepted it fully. 
embraced what God gave him and, and made the most of everything that he did. But it was never about him. It was always about the Lord. And so that's what happens here is, is that he got this armor bearer who will pledge loyalty to him because he knows what kind of a man Jonathan is. And we find out later what kind of a man Jonathan is, and we find it out over and over again. He's a man who, who follows the Lord, who trusts the Lord, and who does what the Lord tells him to do, which is exactly the opposite of Saul. But it's, it's the same kind of man David was, but he was willing to give over his claim to the throne in favor of David because he recognized God's anointing on David as the king. This wasn't about order of succession. No, it was about who did God choose. And so it, it, Dave, Jonathan is one of the most remarkable men that we meet anywhere in Scripture, in my mind. And it's because he trusted in the Lord for all things. And that's what we see in this gospel lesson with Jesus going to the cross. I mean, taking the cross to Golgotha. And as they go up, Jesus is faltering under the weight of that cross after the horrible beating that he had already received. And so they impress a man called Simon from the land of Cyrene, which is up in Libya. They press him into service, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Can you imagine that? It says that he's come up from the country, and this would have been for the Passover. He would have come there. And so now he's just standing there, and suddenly all of a sudden somebody comes up, and the soldiers come and say, here, you take this cross and carry it. And so he walks up that hill, up to Golgotha, following Jesus, who is falteringly walking along up this road. And you know that, that when he took that cross, their eyes must have met. And you can imagine what he might have been thinking, what he might have been feeling. And you can imagine later, after the resurrection, the honor that he felt in being allowed to carry the cross of the Christ and to have come into that contact. And all he did was show up that day. All he did was do what was necessary, which is to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, and now he will be forever the man who carried the cross of Christ. Unbelievable. And there followed him a great multitude of the people, him being Jesus, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. It's an unusual thing that it's these women, all these women are mourning and lamenting for Jesus. And it's an odd thing until you look at actually sort of the history of the church. I don't think I've ever been in a church where the, the most faithful people there weren't the women. I remember hearing the story in uh, Pauly's Island, which is a little sleepy beach town at the time. And, and the Episcopal Church there had lost its rector. And it's the church that I served in for a period of time as a as pastoral care person. So they lost their rector, and, th and then this group of faithful women began to pray. They began to pray that the Lord would send a spirit-filled man to come and lead that congregation, and he did. He answered their prayers in ways that they could never, ever have imagined. It birthed an, a new denomination, an orthodox denomination that planted several hundred churches within a five-year period. But, but before that, it was a beacon of light in that whole region. On Wednesdays, we used to have huge numbers of people come for the healing service, and we saw remarkable miracles that God worked in that healing service. I mean, there's just no question that God worked those miracles, and it was because of the, those faithful women who prayed. And, and then 
the, a man came that, that led that church in, into greatness, into becoming one of the most well-known churches, that we, we would also have several times a year, we would have leadership conferences where rectors of other churches, and in some cases even other denominational churches, would come and, and learn about leadership and learn about what made that church great. And it was always about the Lord. It always had to do with him. It didn't have anything to do with the man who led that church. He was a wonderful man. He was a mentor in my life. But but it was never about him. At least he never made it about him. Other people certainly did, but he never made it about himself. And so what we saw was great things done by the Lord during that period of time. And it, it was a remarkable thing to see. And and it was, a, it was hope for that entire region. People would come from all over on Wednesdays for that healing service. And then he was so generous with his leadership that, that even then uh, he, he was always willing to let other people do great things and get all the credit for him. And then he raised up an, another couple in the church and, and she led a women's ministry that in a town of about 11,000 people at the time, there were 700 women on our campus on a regular basis coming for her teachings. And so he was always willing to share that with others and always willing to raise others up. It was an extraordinary time. But, but these faithful women always have a special place in my heart. And so Jesus turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they'll say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they'll begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, then what will happen when it's dry? What will happen when I'm not here? And, and certainly we do see that. We see the persecutions. We see the martyrs and all those kinds of things in the early church. That, that the, you know, the blood of the martyrs is, is, is actually the foundation of the church beyond Jesus. Um, and so it's, it, it's Jesus is the foundation, and the blood of the martyrs stands on top of that as the further part of the, the growth of the church and the power of the church, what was the commitment made by, by the men and women who, who went to their death because of their allegiance to Jesus and for their unwavering faith in the truth of the gospel and the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus and his kingship and lordship over all. And so Paul, who is called still Saul here, now I think I mentioned this that already, that, that Saul in Greek um, sounds like a word that means a little boy who swishes his rear end when he walks. And so God didn't change his name from Saul to Paul. It's basically a, a Hellenized version of the, of the word Saul. So he's named after the king, uh, the first king of Israel. And yet he has to change his name to Paul because he's, he's given the, the ministry of going to the Gentiles. And so to minister in the Gentile world required him to Hellenize that name. So he's still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's going to go to Syria in this mission. I mean, it, nothing is going to deter Saul. He's willing to go outside of Israel in order to do this. And, and you can see in that willingness, what you see is sort of the, the man who he was because that's the man who he was as an apostle. He goes all over the place to spread the gospel. Here he's going outside the land in order to persecute those who are spreading the gospel. And then later he becomes the apostle who goes everywhere to spread that same gospel. So as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? 
And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the, a voice from heaven being anything other than Yahweh is an unbelievable thing. And so now he hears, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That word comes from heaven. How devastating. He must have thought that there's no way in the world he was going to live from this encounter. But no, the grace of God gives him this chance. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. And the men who were traveling with him were speechless because they heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. And he rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He was an extraordinary man. Saul was, and, and always was. He was zealous for God. That was what was important was God. And so what he wanted to do was make sure that anything that was a heresy, anything that would draw people away from the true and living God would not take root in the synagogues because that's where he said he was going. He's the synagogues in Damascus. So he, he was going to, it doesn't matter what it was take, he was zealous for the glory of God and now he finds out that he was wrong absolutely wrong and he spends on a dime and he does everything for the rest of his life for the glory of God and the proclamation of his son Jesus it, it, it takes an extraordinary man to not only admit they're wrong but to change their entire life based on that truth in the same way that Jonathan did in his own life he could have expected to become king but he laid aside that claim because that wasn't what was important what was important was that God's will would be done